Are you happy in the Lord this morning? Amen. Amen. <clears throat> was traveling down here last Sunday to the graduation service for the graduates, and I uh, turned to Luann and I said, do you think John is faking it? <clears throat> and she just looked at me and said, well, if he is, he's doing a really good job of it. <laughs> oh, wow. <clears throat> it's great to have all those back from strong. God is good. <sighs> Trying time, but God uh, will see us all the way through to the other side. Take your Bibles, if you would, and go with me to John chapter 14. I want to look at John chapter 13 just briefly, but we will be in John chapter 14. <clears throat> Sola told me I had to be done at quarter of, John. Did she tell you that? <clears throat> so I, Gary Acker used to be a deacon of mine over at Hillside, and when I was there for a little while, he said, Pastor, we really love, love your messages and a lot of meat, a lot of things to chew on, but quite frankly, we like fast food. <laughs> no, Gary, Gary did not say that to me, but Sola did this morning. <clears throat> want to do something a little bit different this morning. I know it's Communion Sunday. I uh, struggled with several different uh, things that I wanted to uh, preach on, but uh, decided uh, to do something that surrounds around the communion service because it is so critical to us as believers. And sometimes uh, we tend to just tack it on at, at the end of the service and uh, communion uh, really deserves some time, doesn't it? As we think about all of the events that surround communion, um, and I want to talk a little bit this morning as to how that relates to us as believers. And I've always been interested in, in studying the last words of people in the Bible. Jacob's last words to his son, his sons, is is kind of... Uh, a great analogy of the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, when we think about Moses' last words to the children of Israel just before handing the torch over to uh, Joshua, uh, he uh, gave a message, and basically it was three points. He said, remember where you came from. Point two, remember where you came from. And point three was, remember where you came from. It was a tremendous message, letting the children of Israel do not forget how you've been delivered from bondage. Uh, just a tremendous text on that subject. Paul's last words. Great text to study. Jesus' last words on the cross, right? Many have talked much about his last words. As we come to John chapter 13 this morning, and particularly chapter 14 and 15, these three chapters really record for us some of the last words that Jesus had for his disciples in the upper room uh, and on his way to Gethsemane. Uh, it was a night of destiny. Uh, Jesus had gathered with his disciples in the upper room, and in just a few hours, 
uh, he would be on his way to Gethsemane and on his way to die on the cross. And Jesus tried to explain this to his men, and that's what he's doing in chapter 13. And he had been sharing with the men concerning his death, concerning his burial, and concerning his resurrection, and even his ascension. And the thoughts of these events left his disciples really uh, very confused, realizing these men had really all left their livelihoods to follow Christ. They were all looking for him to establish his kingdom in their lifetime. And all of a sudden, in chapter 13, Jesus starts talking to them about some things that they fully did not understand. Look at chapter 13 with me and just a few of these things and try to put yourself in their place. In verse 21 of chapter 13, and Jesus, when he had said these things, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, One of you will betray me. The disciples were confused about that. They were were concerned about that. They looked at one another uh, perplexed, it says here, about whom he spoke. Now, there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom. We know that that was John and, and whom Jesus loved. And so Simon Peter motioned over there to John to say, you know, John, ask Jesus who he's talking about. Because I really would like to know. And then it continues on there. And leaning back on Jesus, they said to him, Lord, who who is it? And Jesus tells him, it is him to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And now after uh, the piece of bread, Satan entered to him. And Jesus said to him, whatever you do, Judas, do it quickly. So so this is a dialogue that's going on at the table in the upper room just before Jesus goes on his way to Gethsemane. And as it goes on here, go down to verse 33. Now, little children, I, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So again, Jesus is throwing out all of this stuff to his disciples, and, and, and they are very confused. And Simon Peter, in verse 36, said to him, Lord, where, where are you going? Right? And Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter is not sure what he's talking about here. We know, we read the rest of the story, Right? But these are confused men. These are men who have given their lives to follow Jesus. They knew he was God. They knew they were on the right road. And all of a sudden, their world is being shaken all around them. In the next verse, Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, will you lay down your life for my sake? Before the cock crows three times, you are going to deny me. I'm sure Peter is, is shaken by this, starting to think, am I the one? Am I the one that is going to betray Jesus? Because that's pretty much what you just said to me. And so then we get into chapter 14. I don't want to read the first three verses here. 
because I want to concentrate on this passage this morning. As we think about why are we doing this on Communion Sunday, this is what was happening on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Later, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it's going to say, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. On the night in which he was betrayed, he instituted the Lord's Supper. And he did it for a specific reason. He wanted them to know to be comforted and saying, look, I've got this. I've got this. They didn't get it at the time. Later they would. Look at these words in chapter 14. These are very familiar to us. Let not your heart be troubled. Really. He had just troubled them. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. We know that that didn't comfort them next Because of the next verses. We see in verse 5, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going and how can we know the way? Give us the address and we'll go with you. That's what he's saying. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but my me. I'm not sure that they caught that. Now, it's a bit difficult for us living 2,000 years later to catch the significance of all of what Jesus was saying here. I think we understand it more than the disciples did at the time, obviously. But the reason this is difficult for us because his promise to the disciples that he was drawing on here is really an analogy from a Jewish marriage custom in biblical times. Now, this is not something that that I came up with. Rennie Showers, uh, John, you've probably got these books of Rennie Showers. Maranatha, O Lord, Come. Rennie Showers is, uh, is writing and has written for years on a definitive studies of the rapture of the church. Uh, he used to be a speaker, Bill, at Word of Life years ago. He would come in as an adjunct lecturer to Word of Life. Graduated from Philadelphia uh, Bible College years ago. Went on to study at Dallas Theological Seminary. He went on from there to Grace Theological Seminary and got his doctorate. For years he worked with the Friends of Israel. For years he worked with the Institute of Biblical Studies. Tremendous man of God, one of the great minds of our day, and has held strong to the pre-millennial, pre-tribulational view of the rapture. All right, And so, years ago, I I read a pamphlet of his about the bridegroom and this passage. And I looked all over for it this week. I couldn't find it. But I had written some notes years ago about this pamphlet. And and this morning when I went downstairs to get this book, because I knew I had one of his books, and in there, there's a chapter called The Bridegroom Comes. And in that chapter, it's worth the book just for this chapter of some of the things that I want to share with you this morning about the analogy of the Jewish wedding customs to what's happening and is going to happen with Jesus 
and the bride, his church. I, I highly recommend you get this book. If you, if you can't find it, steal it from John. He has it. I say all that to say this, Rennie Showers is not a wacko. This analogy that he draws, I believe, is a very good analogy of what is going on here. So I want to talk about the Jewish marriage customs. If you have notes this morning, you can follow along with that and fill them in. I think Solo is going to try to keep up with it here. But, but in the Jewish marriage customs, the first major step in, in the Jewish marriage was the betrothal. The betrothal. And the betrothal involved the establishment of the marriage covenant. And by Jesus' time, it was usual for such a covenant to be established as a result of the prospective bridegroom taking the initiative on getting married and wanting to marry a particular girl. And the prospective bridegroom would travel from the father's house to the home of the prospective bride. And there, he would negotiate with the father of the young woman to determine a price. They call it the mohar, the price that he must pay to purchase the bride. I don't know why this ever stopped. Because I've got four girls. And I really think it should be reinstituted. And I'm just letting you know right now, I have a daughter that's 18 years old. It is (laughs) $25,000. Because she is a keeper. And Ashley's right about the same. Amber. All right? Amber. John, don't don't you think $25,000 is a fair price? And you may say, well, I don't think Lydia's worth $25,000. Well, that's what it costs to do a wedding today. And that's how much I'm going to ask. So don't ask. Anyway. Once the bridegroom paid the purchase price, the marriage covenant was thereby established. And the young man and the young woman at that point were regarded as husband and wife. Remember, Joseph... And Mary had come to that point. Remember, Joseph wanted to put Mary away for reasons believing that she had broken the covenant by becoming pregnant. That was prior to the wedding ceremony. From that moment on, the bride was declared to be consecrated, to be sanctified, to be set apart exclusively for the groom. For her husband-to-be. And as a symbol of that covenant relationship that had been established, the groom and the bride would drink from a cup of wine over which a betrothal benediction would be pronounced. And so this covenant had been established. They would drink from a cup of wine as a symbol of that covenant. And there would be a betrothal prayer for this couple. By the way, when you go down to Sight and Sound and see the Christmas program, they portray this perfectly. They portray the negotiation between the father and the bridegroom. They portray the cup and the wine ceremony. They portray the benediction over this couple. It was great to see because this is exactly how the Jewish customs were. 
So as a symbol of the covenant relationship that had been established, the groom and the bride would drink this wine. All right. After the marriage covenant had been established, the groom would leave the home of the bride and return to his father's house. There he would remain separate from the bride for a period of 12 months. The period of separation allowed the bride for her time to prepare her trousseau, they called it, her wardrobe, her linens. She would have time to prepare for her marriage over the coming months to prepare herself for married life. The groom, in your notes there, spent his time preparing for living accommodations in the father's house where he could bring his bride back on the wedding day. Now, at the end of the separation period of 12 months, the groom would come back to take his bride to live with him. And the taking of the bride usually took place at night. The groom, the best man, and the other escorts would, have, uh, would leave the groom's father's house and they would conduct a torchlight processional to the home of the bride. This was a big event. This, this was huge when, when they got married. They, they made a big deal of symbolism. They made a big deal of how important the family is. And all the bride, although the bride was expecting her groom to come, she did not know the exact timing of his coming. They knew what day it was. They knew it was going to be that evening. But she didn't know exactly what time he was coming. And, and I can't even imagine that. Imagine the woman waiting for the man. Like that's probably the last time that ever happened in their <laughs> lives. At least in my house. That would never happen again. Anyway, Luann's not here today. Don't tell her I said that. <laughs> but anyway, the groom's arrival would be preceded with a shout. The shout would forewarn the bride to be prepared for the coming of the groom. I don't know what the shout was. Like, here he comes. I don't know what it was. But it preceded the bridegroom coming. He's on his way. Get ready. And so after the groom received the bride together with her female attendants, the whole wedding party then would return from the bride's home and go to the father's house. And upon arrival there, the wedding party would find the wedding guest had already assembled at the father's house. And shortly after the arrival of the bride and groom, they would be escorted by the other members of the wedding party to the bridal chamber. That was called the hoopah. They would be escorted to the bridal chamber. Today we would call it the Marriott or the Poconos. <laughs> All right? And they're escorting them specifically to this chamber. Now, prior to entering the chamber, the bride remained veiled so that no one could see her face. And while the groomsman and the bridesmaid would wait outside... The bride and the groom would enter the bridal chamber alone. And there in the privacy of that place, they would enter into physical union for the first time. Thereby consummating the marriage that they had covenanted earlier 
to do so. Now, after the marriage was consummated, the groom would announce that the consummation was complete to the other members of the wedding party who were waiting outside of the bridal chamber. You can imagine this. This is not a good idea today. What I'm saying is this was a big deal. The people would pass on the news that the marital union to the wedding, the marital union had taken place. They would go back and let the wedding guests know, and the wedding guests would make merry for the next seven days. They're in the chamber having their honeymoon. The wedding guests are making merry for the next seven days. Who had time for this? Man, I have cousins and nephews and nieces getting married all over the place. I can't even make it to the wedding half the time. Imagine going to the wedding knowing that you're going to spend seven days in festivities. The seven days of hoopah. The family was important. You're talking about that this morning in Bill's class. I'm telling you what, that Bill's class is going to be a classic. Paul Tripp talking about the awesomeness of God. We need to talk about it. We need to think about it. Families are important. And we need to talk about it all over the place to let our kids know that God exists and he's an awesome God. I'll tell you, you may not want to miss that class. At the conclusion of the seven days, the groom would bring his bride out of the bridal chamber now with her veil taking off. Her face is open so that everyone could see who his bride was. Amazing. Now, that's the way the Jewish customs were. Now, I want to explain the analogy this morning and give some application as to how we get into the communion service. The explanation of the analogy. Earlier we said that in his promise in John 14, John is drawing an analogy from a Jewish marriage custom in biblical times. And now that we've looked at the customs, let's try to figure out how this is playing out. And to begin with, the first thing that I want to say is that the scriptures regard the church to be the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to go there with me just quickly. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, talks about the church as the bride of Christ. As he talks about the marriage union and husbands and wives and their responsibilities, and he talks about this mystery as the church being the bride of Christ. Look at verses 22, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands. We're not here for teaching today, thankfully, on all this. The husband is the head of the wife. Also as what? Christ is head of the church. That's important, right? Christ is head of the church. These issues that he's talking about are important because of the picture that is going on. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as what? Christ Loved the church. The Bible depicts Christ or the church as the bride of Christ. 
not just here, it's, it's other places as well. Look at verse uh, tw- 31. For this reason shall a man leave... Oh wait, go down to verse 27. First of all, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Consecrated to God, holy, acceptable. Verse 31, for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Is it important that when you make a commitment in marriage that you stay to it? Bill was talking about his parents celebrating 60 years coming up in August. Is that right? 60 years is longer than I've been around. That's a commitment. I thank God for people like that who go across the grains of the whole culture and show that the Bible truths are true. That picture that they hold and they hold on to each other forever is a picture of Christ's love for the church. Is he ever going to stop loving us? No. It's critical. It's important. Our kids need to see it. They need to see the awesomeness of God in marriage. Just as the Jewish bridegroom took the initiative in marriage by leaving his father's house and traveling to the home of the prospective bride, so Jesus left his father's house in heaven and traveled to earth, the home of his prospective church, some 2,000 years ago. Amen? B. In the same manner as the Jewish bridegroom, when he came to the bride's home for the purpose of obtaining her through the establishment of a marriage covenant, so Jesus came to earth for the purpose of obtaining the church through the establishment of a covenant. On the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. He instituted communion. We will do this a little bit later. And as he passed the cup of wine to his disciples on that communion night, he said, this cup is a representative of my new covenant with you. This is a beautiful picture. New covenant that I have with you. New covenant in my blood, he says. This was a way of saying that he would establish a new covenant through the shedding of his blood on the cross. Another analogy or parallel to the custom of the Jewish groom paying a price for the purchased bride. Jesus had to pay a price for his bride, the church, and the price he paid was with his own blood. And it was because of this purchase price, remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20, do you, not, do you not know that you are not your own, for you are bought with a what? You are bought with a price. You are a purchase possession, therefore glorify God in your body because it's His. He purchased you with His own blood. Why does God God always tell me what to do? He bought you with a price. He has the right to tell you anything to do. And you ought to just do it. 
D, also the Jewish bride being declared to be sanctified or set apart exclusively for her groom. Once the marriage covenant was established, the church has been declared to be sanctified or set apart exclusively for Christ. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 5. Spotless, without blemish, set apart for the bridegroom. E, we're going to move quickly through this because soul is pushing me. In the same way, the cup of wine served as a symbol of the marriage covenant through which the Jewish groom obtained his bride. So the cup of communion serves as a symbol of the covenant through which Christ has obtained the church. Couple more. F, just as the Jewish groom left her home of the bride and returned to his father's house after the marriage covenant was established, so Jesus left the earth, the home of the church, and returned to his father's house in heaven after he established the new covenant and risen from the dead. Remember that? On, on, on the, what's the name of that hill? Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives, following all this events that took place, Jesus is ascending into heaven, right? They say, well, you know, angels, so why stand you here gazing? This same Jesus in which you see ascending into heaven is going to return in like fashion just as you see him going now. That's powerful. That's powerful enough for those guys to spend the rest of their lives and be martyrs for Christ. Because that's how real it was to them. They saw him go. They saw the, they heard the promise that he's coming back. And I'm going to serve him till I die. And it doesn't matter what you do to me. It doesn't matter what happens to me. Because the bridegroom is coming back for me. The church. Parallel to the custom of the Jews' groom preparing living accommodations for the bride in the father's house during the time of separation. Christ, let's go back to John chapter 14. Christ has been preparing living accommodations for the church in his father's house in heaven during the separation of the bride. Do not let your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In me, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go, what? To prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again. Imagine what heaven's going to be like. Heaven is a wonderful place. The song used to say, filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face because heaven is a wonderful place. Folks, this is, this is not pie in the sky. I, I, I was at a conference last week in a, a training that, that I've got to do at work. And one of the one of the events that that we did at the training was to pull everybody in, and the name of the activity was um, first know yourself. And I had this list of twelve things, and what we had to do was list in order of importance where these twelve things fall in. I'm going to read them to you here, even though I don't finish, finish the message. This, this is important. Here they are. How would you list these as as matters of importance in your life? One, a comfortable, prosperous life. Two, 
I'm not going to put numbers on here. These are all just here, and you, you, you list them according to importance. An active, exciting, active, stimulating life. A sense of accomplishment, making, last, making a lasting contribution. Family security, taking care of a loved one. Inner harmony, freedom from inner conflict. Try getting that one without God. Mature love, sexual and spiritual intimacy. Try getting that one without God. Social recognition, respect, admiration. True friendship, close companionship. A world at peace, freedom from war and conflict. Good luck with that. Here's the one. Salvation, deliverance from sin, eternal life. A world of beauty, nature, and arts. Pleasure, an enjoyable, leisurely life. Now, now you have to think about this list. And we're working with lost people here. These are good, well-intentioned people that are in the room. But they get together and they begin discussing their list if they want to share this. And I was blown away by what I heard. Because when three of them came back, they said, well, we, we, we just all know first off that salvation, deliverance from sin, and eternal life is the last of our importance on our list. In fact, they decided in their little group that it shouldn't even be on the list. <laughs> Folks, let me tell you something. It's one thing to be wrong. It's another thing to be dead wrong. Heaven is a wonderful place because it's real. Heaven is a place where we will spend eternity with Jesus because he's real. Heaven would not be heaven without Jesus there. Amen. He's the bridegroom. He's coming back to take us home. We're going to spend eternity with him, seeing him face to face. And the older we get, the closer we get. True? Listen, there is a lost world out there that is writing off salvation, sin, and a need for God all together. The, the elite, educated people of our world say, don't even put it on the list. He's coming back. Apart from that, I have no strong feelings about it. Just as the taking of the Jewish bride, I have to quit. Just as the taking of the Jewish bride was accomplished by a procession, uh, the groom and the male escorts from the groom's father's house to the home of the bride, so also the taking of the church will be accomplished by a procession of Christ with an angelic escort from Christ's home in heaven as he comes for the church. It's going to be preceded by a shout, right? 1 Thessalonians 4.13. It's going to come with a shout. He's going to shout before he comes. The pictures and the analogy here of the Jewish ceremony are rampant. We could go on. I just recommend steal the book from John and get the rest of them because they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Just in closing, I want to talk about the significance of the analogy. 
How significant is that to us? First, let me say, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, understand that He came to this earth and died on the cross for the purpose of paying the penalty for your sins and through the shedding of His blood, He paid the price necessary to purchase you to be a part of His church. If you're here and don't know Christ today, Jesus saves. Jesus died on the cross that I might have life. And as a five-year-old, God opened my eyes to that truth some 51 years ago. And I've never doubted it. Because he changed me inside and out. The other thing that is here, secondly, if you're a believer, during the time of separation between the establishment of the marriage covenant and the coming of the bridegroom to take his bride, we are asked to remember these things. This time of separation has been going on for 2,000 years. And what he's saying to his disciples and what he's saying to us tonight is I want you to be comforted by something. It doesn't matter what you face. It doesn't matter if you're going to be executed upside down, hung upside down, and everything else that happened to the disciples. He wanted them to know in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Heaven is a wonderful place, and we're going to wake up on the shore one day. Right? Jesus saying, I've got this. And I want you to remember it down here. I want you to remember it at the communion table. I want the men to come up because we're going to take communion this morning. What a beautiful picture to go into the communion time together. We've got four guys coming up. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 11, just a couple verses. For I received from the Lord that, that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He wants us to remember this. These symbols, they're not the actual blood of Christ, as some teach. It's not the actual body of Christ. These symbols are spectacles. Spurgeon said it well. The bread, the cup, are spectacles. Don't stop looking through those spectacles until you see Jesus Christ dying for you on the cross. Remember me. This do in remembrance of me. And I can't go to the communion table without thinking about the truth about heaven. Heaven is a wonderful place. 
Let's pray as we remember that. You pray for our bread. Father, we stand in awe of your love and your compassion for us today, Lord. We thank you for this message, for the symbols. Father, most of all for Jesus, Father. We look for his return. We thank you for salvation through his blood. Thank you for this message today, Lord. Again, we stand in awe of what you've done for us.